James is particularly good in offering us advice of that kind. As we work through what he has to say, I pray that we would allow God to show us areas in our lives where we can take what we know and turn it into what we actually do. Okay, first of all, a little historical background to the book. Now, the author James was probably the brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem Council. Now, I say probably, and it's like a 99% percentage there because there's a lot of evidence for that, but there is a tiny bit of doubt. So let's not be confused about how much doubt there really is. There are four Jameses listed in the New Testament, and identifying this one as the author is a consequence of the Apostle James having died too early in about AD 44 to have written it, and the other two Jameses just weren't important enough to have written a book like this or to be credible authors. Since he heads up the list of four brothers in Matthew 1355, it is probable that he was the oldest after Jesus. He was not always a supporter of his brother, and we see that, we see that in John 7, I'm not going to read that out, um, where he and his brothers are shown to misinterpret what Jesus was doing and not to believe in him. However, at some point this changed in a pretty radical way, and James became a prominent member of the early church. You know Jesus has a way of changing our opinions. Now, we can deduce this prominence from accounts of him in the scriptures. Um, Jesus appeared only to a few select individuals after his resurrection, and James was one of those. Paul himself called him a pillar of the church. On his post-conversion visit to Jerusalem, Paul saw James and no other apostle, and he repeated this selectivity on his last visit. When Peter was rescued from prison, his specific instruction was to tell James. James had an important position on the Council of Jerusalem. This was a conference held in about AD 49 between delegates, which included Paul and Barnabas, from the Church of Antioch in Syria and delegates from the Church at Jerusalem. This council met to settle a dispute over whether Gentile converts to Christianity first had to identify with Judaism by being circumcised. The conclusion of the council, which determined that Gentiles did not have to be circumcised, was a sweeping victory for Paul's understanding of Christianity. In speaking for the council, the Apostle Peter declared, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, that is the Jews, shall be saved in the same way as they, the Gentiles. And lastly, Jude could identify himself merely as the brother of James, so obviously James was very well known indeed. As usual, there's a whole lot of controversy about when the book was actually written. Some people hold for a date in the early 60s, and I'm not talking about the 1960s, while others hold that it was produced before AD 50, based on its Jewish nature and the absence of reference to the controversy over Gentile circumcision. And the interesting thing is this earlier dating would make this book the very earliest of all New Testament writings with the possible exception of Galatians. James was martyred for his faith in AD 62. So, with that background established, let's move on to the book itself. Please can you turn to James chapter 1 if you have not already done so. And today we're going to deal with two verses. My intention at the start of this exercise was to look only at... Uh, 
major themes and not proceed microscopically. Um, however, I've found that as I've gone along, it's just impossible <laughs> not to be faithful to the text, which is so rich in meaning given to us by God. So I've only got as far as verse 2. <laughs> and um, next week we'll, we'll move on to have a look at um, some of the rest. So, we read there. Chapter 1. James, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Now, for your fund of useless information, James's actual name was Jacob, which progressed through the Italian Giacomo to become today's James. Now, of course, with a strange mind that I have, I immediately start, started to think of Sean Connery drawing, drawing, you know, my name is Bond, Jacob Bond. <laughs> doesn't quite have the same name. <laughs> we might expect someone of James' position in the church to start off by using his position of influence to give way to his words. But James does not start like this. He begins with exactly the opposite by identifying himself as a slave using the Greek term doulos. A slave is someone's possession. They have been bought at a price and consequently they are not free to do as they like. They must do what the owner tells them when they are told to do it. Maybe something they do not feel comfortable doing and because they are not paid a wage there is no immediate benefit to them. The use of the term doulos is significant because this word describes a slave who was born into slavery as opposed to an androphon who was made a slave. James had become a doulos through his new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. And we too share this new birth. The appetites of our flesh may influence us to live our lives as Christians under our own terms, but the truth is, we must not. To truly serve God in Christ as a doulos we must hand over our will to him and allow him to take us and use us as he desires. This may be inconvenient and unpleasant and our worldly senses may not see any profit immediately. And this is hard because we always want to know what's in it for us. However, we can look forward to the great promise of God's freedom which is given to us by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that is eternal life with Him in heaven. As we study any scripture or any aspect of our relationship with God, we must bear this understanding in mind. We are slaves, and slaves gladly. James identifies his master as God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing so, he gains credibility of the most important kind. It is good to be the king's messenger on earth, but it is infinitely better to be associated with the heavenly king. You know, there's a lesson for, for this, in this for us. We should not be fearful of our message. We too are servants of God. We bring the gospel not in our own strength, but in the strength of God. Interestingly, James is the only New Testament writer to say that he is a slave of both God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, given that he was writing mainly to believers of a Jewish background, it is possible that he wanted to be sure that nobody misunderstood that Jesus was the promised Messiah and was God. To be God's doulos was a position of honor in Jewish culture. 
Old Testament biblical characters who use this title include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Isaiah, and Daniel. In the New Testament, Epaphras, Timothy, Paul, Peter, Jude, John, and Jesus himself all used it too. By taking the same name, James shows us, like these other biblical greats, it is not earthly position that is important, but who we serve in heaven. Do you aspire in your Christian walk to be like any of those luminaries listed above? If so, then you need to start by taking the position of a slave. The recipients of this letter are identified as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So, who were these people? The term 12 tribes was commonly used in the New Testament to refer to the nation of Israel. To start, the 12 tribes were split into two nations, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern Judah. However, God's chosen people were always made up of the Jews from all 12 tribes, and despite their dispersion, he will someday unite them. It was no longer possible to definitively identify tribal identity in many cases, because the temple records have been destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC. Further, many Jews had either been deported to foreign lands by various conquerors, or had voluntarily moved to other countries for business or personal reasons. So James is writing to all Jews anywhere, regardless of their tribal background. And the, word, the Greek word diaspora is used to describe this dispersion of the Jews, and from my perspective, it's still being used today because it's being applied to my fellow Zimbabweans who have been scattered liberally around the world. So, does this mean that this message is only meant for Jews? Well, of course not. James was writing to Jewish Christians and there was no difference between their faith and ours, or indeed their human failings and ours. Finally, there is the greeting. This is just one word. Karain. And it means rejoice or be glad. And it was a commonly used way of saying hello in James's time just like today is used here in New Zealand. However, James did not mean its common roots to obscure the fact that he intended his message to cause its readers to rejoice and be glad by showing them how to be sure that they are genuinely saved. When Satan afflicts us with trials, the root of our hope is the promise of life in heaven with God, thanks to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Well, that's verse 1. We've learned that we should seek to take the position of slaves for Christ and that we have something to rejoice and be glad about. James does not waste any time moving along into some good, meaty advice, and so we shouldn't waste any time either in seeing what he has to say. So, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. What? Is this guy nuts? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials? What on earth? can be possibly mean. The Greek word rendered consider is hegemai, and it is an imperative, commanding term. So in the context of the passage, James wants his readers to know that they should consider it all joy, irrespective of how they might feel at the time. We need to be reminded of this because a joyful attitude is just not usually our response to trials. In addition, the, sorry, the addition of the term all to joy could either mean that it is the only emotion we should feel or possibly it infers the quality of the joy. A full joy based on a sincere trust in 
God's provision and knowledge that whatever happens, God will ensure that it, is, that it is for our good in the end. Note that it is when, not if, that we encounter trials because it's inevitable that we're going to do so. We will meet trials in just the same way as any human. Disease, death, and accident, we can all think of lots of things. The list is very long. And we're also going to meet some trials specifically because of our faith. In John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember the word I spoke to you. No slave is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, In fact, all who want to live religiously in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What is important is not so much our suffering, but our response. Our response has internal and external consequences. Trials will change us internally as part of the process of sanctification. Trials will also put the spotlight on whether our faith is living, genuine, and saving or not. Our external response to difficult circumstances is a demonstration to others of the power of Christ in our lives. In recent times, this was beautifully shown by the parents of the students from Unum Christian College who died in the Mangatipopo River. Their faith in Christ was a witness to all who saw them, and there cannot be many in New Zealand, and indeed in many parts of the world, who did not see them. So why does God allow trials to come into our lives? Here are a number of purposes demonstrated by Scripture. Firstly, trials test our faith. In Exodus 16.4, God says to Moses, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will now rain down bread from heaven for you. Each day the people are to go out and gather their daily portion. Thus will I test them to see whether they follow my instructions or not. Trials give us a bit of a spiritual reality check on the strength of our faith. If we tend to become bitter and resentful as a consequence of testing, it is because our faith is weak. It's important to be this is important, so let's be specific. What is weak faith? Now, faith is weak when we do not believe in our hearts that God really is who He says He is, that He will not or cannot do what He says He can, and that we are the most important person in the universe. It is depending on me and not on thee. If this is the case, then how do we reverse this position and strengthen our faith? Well, firstly, it may be helpful to have an understanding of what faith is. Faith is not the same as knowledge. It has a basis of knowledge, and it will grow as our knowledge grows, but faith goes beyond merely knowing. I mean, I know that 2 times 5 is 10, but this leads to no commitment or dependence on anybody other than myself. Faith has a strong element of trust to it that results and holding on to something despite all advice to the contrary. To have faith in Christ, I must firstly understand the facts of the Gospel. Then, I must approve of them, agree with those facts. The most fundamental agreement must be that I am a sinner, that Christ has paid the price for my sins and holds the only key to my salvation. I must also have the desire to be saved by Jesus. None of this adds up to saving faith, however. That comes 
When I put my trust in Christ as my Saviour, and that trust comes from my heart, now I have exercised faith. How then can I grow and maintain my faith? Romans 10, 17 says, Thus faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. Contrary to popular belief, faith is not made stronger by ignorance or believing against the evidence. When we have true evidence about Christ, we are better able to put our trust in Him. Where will we get that reliable evidence? From God's scriptures, of course, from the Bible. We have to diligently study God's word and get to know Him better. Then our faith will grow and be strong. Why is the church weak today? Does it focus on faithful preaching of God's word? Is the congregation faithfully studying God's word? Sadly, in many cases not. This is a challenge to all of us. When I prepared my first sermon, I realized that the principal reason that the pastor was a better Christian than me was mostly because he did what I was supposed to be doing, study the word regularly. Let's be sure that we are feeding our faith properly and that we are not the ones who have a weak church. Secondly, trials humble us. When we are blessed for a while, we have an unfortunate tendency to forget that our blessings come from God. Often we begin to think that they are a consequence of our own efforts, but this is wrong thinking. God has a way of setting us right. Nobody is too important not to suffer from the sin of pride, as Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, that I might not become too elated, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, an angel of Satan, to beat me, to keep me from being too elated. Thirdly, experiencing trials will reduce our dependence on worldly things. In the same way that we can be led astray by our pride, Material success can also cause us to forget that the source of our worldly wealth is God. These successes may be educational qualifications, promotion or position in the workplace, important people we know, or many other things. And these are not wrong in themselves, but when we begin to rely on them rather than God, once again, we are not on the right road. In John 6.5, Jesus asked Philip, when Jesus raised his hands, sorry, raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He said this to test him, because he himself knew what he was going to do. And then in verse 7, we see Philip's response. Philip answered him, 200 days wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little bit. Oops. Before we feel too satisfied with ourselves, for seeing that Philip ought to have known that he could rely on Jesus to provide what was necessary, we may find it useful to think about the many times that we have made that mistake. Although we may not like trials, they will definitely help us to remember the source of our blessings. Fourthly, trials give us the hope of heaven. The harder our trials are, and the longer they last, the more we look forward to being with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, we read, Therefore, we are not discouraged. Rather, although our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That we look not to what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. Fifthly, trials expose the true object of our love. God may sometimes ask us to do really difficult things. Our readiness to obey will expose the depth of our faith and the focus of our love. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son was a very clear demonstration of his faith and love of God. There is no thing, no person, we should love more than God. In Deuteronomy 10-12, God says to his people, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and follow his ways exactly, to love and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? <coughs> and this command was reaffirmed by Jesus in Matthew 22, 36. Thank you. <laughs> Teacher, what commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest first commandment. It is easy for us when things are going well to camouflage our true loyalties from ourselves and from others. However, when trials come along, those layers will be stripped off. The challenge is this. Will we merely replace them when things come right? Or will we use the opportunity to refocus our anchor point to God and more importantly, obey the greatest and first commandment? Six. Trials teach us the value of God's blessings. Our worldly character tells us to value material things. Our senses value comfort, pleasure, and ease. But what about our heart and spirit? Trials can strip away worldly goods and the things that give us comfort and pleasure. Well, what will we look to then? How about God's word, his care, his provision, his strength, and his salvation? In Psalm 63, David shows us where our hearts should be. O oh God, you are my God, for you I long, for you my body yearns, for you my soul thirsts, like a land parched, lifeless, and without water. So I look to you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory, for your love is better than life. My lips offer you worship. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands, calling on your name. My soul shall savor the rich banquet of praise with joyous lips. My mouth shall honor you. When I think of you upon my bed, through the night watches I will recall that you indeed are my help, and in the shadow of your wings I shout for joy. My soul clings fast to you, your right hand upholds me. Now David knew a bit about trials. In fact, this was written when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Who do you and I turn to? when we are in the wilderness. Is it God? Do we recognize that He has blessed us and continues to bless us? Or do we become bitter and blame anything that is near enough? Marketing people are not fools. They know how to appeal to the sensual side of us and we are continually bombarded by glamorous images on the TV and in magazines assaulted by clever little catchy jingles on the radio that stick in your head and infuriatingly keep you awake at 3 in the morning. <laughs> Our mailboxes are jammed every day with catalogues that tell us what bargains we are missing out on. And they are, they are abetted by the morning abyss of 
easy credit. We start to believe that if we just had that new widescreen TV, then we would be really happy. Two years ago, Joe and I went on a camping holiday at Cooks Beach in the Coromandel. Cooks Beach and especially adjoining Fidianga are full of beautiful batches and huge shiny boats. I would like to say that I was unmoved, but truthfully I have to confess that I was tempted. What was I doing wrong that I didn't have all of those things? I was jealous. I was no longer happy with my lot. I forgot the multitude of blessings from God, chief of which by far is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Really, what can compare with that? And how can we deal with these feelings? A little while ago, I'm sure some of you would have heard on Radio Rima, they were promoting the idea of keeping a gratitude journal, a little book to record the blessings that God has given us. And this is a great idea because it is a permanent reminder that we can use again and again to show us the inestimable value of God's blessing. Inestimable, that's a very long word and I'm stumbling over it, but it's a marvelous word that means extremely precious. I can witness to the value of gratitude in my own life. I have a weakness for things, as I've just spoken about. Although I'm not disciplined enough to keep a gratitude journal, I found great value in taking a little time just to thank God in prayer whenever I feel those lustful thoughts for things. My prayer is that the more I recognize God's blessings in my life, the less I will struggle with lust for those things. Seven. Trials develop spiritual muscles. You can't lift heavy things anymore. Does the idea of running worry you? Well, maybe you need some exercise. I know that I do. So to start, let's look at what happens to physical muscles when we exercise. What is muscle? Put simply, a muscle is a tissue that is a composite of fibers capable of contracting to cause movement of and within the body. Muscle comes in three forms, striated, smooth, and cardiac. And how we're going to concentrate on striated muscle. Now, skeletal, which are these striated muscles, are attached to this, the skeleton via tendons, usually in pairs that pull in opposite directions. For example, biceps, which are called the flexor, and triceps, which are an extensor and move the forearm at the elbow. Striated muscle, which is the muscle we have conscious control over, is composed numerous cylindrically shaped bundles of cells, each enclosed in a little sheath. And each muscle fiber contains several hundred to several thousand tightly packed strands. A muscle fiber is stimulated to contract by electrical impulses from the nervous system. When we stress our muscles, say by lifting and lowering a heavy object, there is physical damage in the form of tiny tears in the muscle fibers. In addition to this, energy stores are depleted and there are buildups of various substances that are waste products, both of the energy stores and of the cells that arrive to begin fixing the physical damage. And this is why you feel stiff and sore after exercise. You may have heard athletes talk about overtraining. Basically, this is just not allowing the body sufficient time to repair the damage done. And this is why you also hear the practice of training different muscle groups on different days. After a week or two, the muscle damage is stopped, the immune system does its job, muscle energy is replaced, replenished, and the muscle fibers are built up bigger and stronger than before. The 
The only way to improve muscle size and muscle strength is to allow adequate recovery time between workouts for the same muscle groups. Why have I spent all this time putting you to sleep talking about muscles? Well, hopefully I can draw some parallels between physical and spiritual muscles. Stronger muscles give us the capacity to run faster, jump higher, and do these things for longer periods. It's just the same with physical spiritual muscles. As Christians, we're called upon to do work from God here on earth, so he wants us to be spiritually fit. When we try to use weak spiritual muscles to lift heavy loads, there's going to be damage. Maybe to our walk, perhaps to our heart, or possibly to our spiritual, spiritual spirit, and not unusually to all of the above. If we continue to try to do the same work without improving the strength of the muscle, the damage builds up faster than it can be repaired, and we become progressively sorer and weaker. We've overtrained. It's time to exercise intelligently, to rest, and eat the right foods. What are spiritual muscles made from? I'd say mainly from faith. So how do we make those muscles stronger? By growing our faith, of course. And how do we do that? Do you recall what I said about trials testing our faith earlier? I think it's appropriate to restate it now. Thus, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. Contrary to popular belief, faith is not made stronger by ignorance or believing against the evidence. When we have true evidence about Christ, we are better able to put our trust in Him. Where do we get that reliable evidence? From God's scriptures, of course. We have to diligently study God's word and get to know Him better. Then our faith will grow and be strong. I want to say here that this is the only place I can think of where eating sweet things and exercise can be simultaneously beneficial. God's Word is good food. Should we focus on only one part of God's Word? No, of course not. All of God's Word is useful, and we need to consider all of it, or we will end up imbalanced in understanding and faulty in doctrine. Exercise different parts of your body on different days. Because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, it will pierce us, and this will often be painful as it exposes weakness and sin in our lives. This is analogous, sorry, I mean cut that out of my speech and I just didn't. <laughs> so now, because I've diligently studied word, God's word, I may have very strong spiritual muscles, but what will happen if I do not use them? They are useless really, nice to look at perhaps, but useless when they are not used for the purpose intended. If I do not use them, they will atrophy and shrink away. That is why we will see later in James how faith without works is dead. God calls us to use what he has given us, not to keep it to ourselves. And that's a challenge to all of us. How are we using our spiritual muscles? Are we using them at all? And perhaps what else could we do with them? When I was in my early 20s, I went on a two-week outward-bound course. No, this was not like a trip to Colonel Kellogg's sanitarium to consume industrial quantities of roughage. Outward-bound was started in response to the recognition that mental fortitude rather than physical strength was more important in survival situations. When I was there, we did indeed do many extremely physical things, but the point of them was to demonstrate 
that what we had assumed were our limits, we just had assumptions, and that we could in fact do far more than we imagined. Although this was many years ago, I can remember one quote from a course attendee who had been there some time earlier, and it said, a mind that has been stretched by new experiences can never return to its former dimensions. And it's just the same with spiritual things. When our minds and hearts have been stretched by new experiences and understanding of God, we will never be the same. And this is why God sends trials to us. It is part of the exercise plan, but this time directed by the greatest personal trainer of all, the creator of the universe and sovereign God. Eighth, and I'm sure you'll be happy to know last, the experience of trials helps us to help others. God is always conscious of the community of his church. He wants it to function in the body with each part cooperating to strengthen the whole. Jesus tells Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like meat. But I have prayed that your own faith may not fail, and once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. Peter's sufferings not only made him stronger and more useful to God, but prepared him to assist others to come to the same place. It is partly for this reason that Jesus came to earth as a man. Hebrews 2 tells us this of Jesus. Because he himself was tested through what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. And Paul sums up this principle in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all encouragement, who encourages us in our every affliction, so that we may be able to encourage those who are in any affliction with the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged by God. For as Christ's sufferings overflow to us, so through Christ does our encouragement also overflow. If we are afflicted, it is for your encouragement and salvation. If we are encouraged, it is for your encouragement, which enables you to enjoy the same sufferings that we suffer. After reviewing the many positive aspects of trials, we have to say that maybe James wasn't so crazy after all. Since they are productive, it is essential that our response to trials is the right one. James goes on to talk about this in the next 10 verses, but that is for another day. I'd like to finish with just a, a couple of thoughts that I think are worth thinking about. Firstly, if trials are so good, should we deliberately seek them out? Should we take a vow of silence and scourge ourselves regularly? I don't think so, because then we are usurping God's position. He has the wisdom to know exactly what type of trial to administer, for what purpose, and exactly for how long. We do not. For sure, there is merit in denying ourselves an extra hamburger, but we should leave the serious business of spiritual shaping to God. Our job is to faithfully study His Word and do His work here on earth. Finally, when we pray for our brothers and sisters who are undergoing trials, is it correct to pray only for their deliverance from that trial? It occurs to me that whilst this is correctly and holy in the spirit of loving our neighbour, perhaps we may move the process along by also praying that they may learn the lesson God intends 
and learn it quickly. Let us pray. Lord, it's hard to understand that trials can be a gift and that we should be grateful for them. That our attitude should be one of joy. And yet, Lord, we begin to see from your word why that should be so. I pray that your word would remain with us, not just in our hearts, but in our attitudes and behaviours, that we would be changed people. In Jesus' name, Amen.